Welcome back to season six of Hoodoo Plant Mamas. We're so excited. I am one of your co-hosts, Leah Nicole. And I'm Danny B. And today, before we get started, Danny B, how have you been during the break? Also, how was your birthday? I have been making it. My birthday was cool. Um, It was kind of chill. I was at home. A friend came over and we just kind of hung out. And then two of my other friends from out of town came in town like a few weeks later and we kind of hung out in Memphis, ate some good food, came back and chilled at my house. So that was fun. Um, The break has been, it's so weird because I feel like so much has happened. Our break feels like it was longer than it actually was because it was really only what, three months? So I'm dealing with some health issues and got a new job. Maybe I got the new job before our last season, but yeah, it's been interesting. What about you? (laughs) Um, this has been a really productive break for me. Very fruitful. I, at the beginning of this year, and we talked about this on our Patreon, I got off of social media. I think I've only been on maybe six or seven times or six or seven days out of this entire year. It's much better for my mental health, (laughs) much better for my overall health, um, And as for my birthday, I don't know what it is lately. Like every time I reach a birthday, I'm just like singing gospel music. I'm so full of gratitude. I'm like, I'm so, (laughs) so thankful um, to have made it another year. Yeah. And so over the break, like similar to you, I have been having health problems since, since I had COVID last year. And so I, one thing that was suggested to me was acupuncture. So I started doing that in February. So far I've done like seven treatments and it has been like the one thing that has helped my overall like health, my mood, helps me sleep. It helps me poop. It just helps me do everything. (laughs) It's, It's really amazing. I don't think, like, I don't think it cures cancer or anything ridiculous, but I do think it is like incredible for your overall like health and well-being so that is what I have been up to so Danny B what are you grateful for today um today I am grateful for books (laughs) I've been trying to do some reading I finished um the revised version of Long Division by Kiese Lehman and the next book I wanted to read was Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward I just haven't started it yet, but I plan to start it soon. I need a break between that book and <laughs> jumping into another traumatic story, kind of traumatic. Um, and I'm thankful I got this app that I want to recommend called I Am. 
you don't have to pay for it. I'm paying for it. It's very cheap because I like all the options it gives me as far as what types of affirmations that I want um, sent to my phone. But I recommend it just like a free app. You don't have to pay. Um, it's been really helpful for me. I get eight notifications to my phone. I started out with three and then I upped it to eight because I was like, I need this all day. I've been in a weird mood, currently kind of off social media. I get on there for work stuff or to share things related to work, but I haven't really been active. So yeah, I'm just kind of in my own world right now and it's been really helpful. And so I'm super thankful for that. And I'm thankful for Lizzo. I've been listening to a lot of her music. Yeah, I watched that documentary. It was so good. I was crying. <laughs> I cried several times. Like, her story is so beautiful. Like, that girl. Yeah, we'll talk about that another time. But, yeah. <laughs> I still haven't seen the uh, the documentary, but I've been listening to Lizzo since 2016. Um, love her. <laughs> uh, but I guess what I have been grateful for, like I said earlier, I'm just like, grateful to still be here I'm grateful to still be doing be able to do the things that I love like I'm grateful to be back on this podcast doing another season um I feel good about this season (laughs) and I'm just I'm grateful for like the energy I have for like improving health and just just everything yeah that's where I am right now (laughs) love it uh, so today we wanted to talk about writing as conjure work. And I feel like this is a reoccurring theme for our podcast. We talk about the different types of spiritual work. And I know a lot of people think it's just like tarot or divining or root working, but writing can be a, a type of spiritual work. Today, I wanted to talk about both writing the past and writing the future. And so For me, I find writing historical fiction or writing about the past to be full of possibility. It actually came from reading Zora Neale Hurston a couple years ago and seeing how much of Black culture has been preserved over the past century, reading her work and being like, Black people still talk and act and do all of these things today. And so it made me kind of open up like, what other similarities do we have between like Black people today and maybe Black people 100 or 200 years ago? And I'm someone who has like read a lot of historical work by Black people during that time. Um, For example, I took a class on slavery and we had to read uh, narratives by people who are enslaved. And here's a fucked up thing about that. In the time, white abolitionists would write slave narratives in the first person, like they were enslaved people. (laughs) So even back then they were black fishing, but yeah. (laughs) But, but something that I noticed about enslaved narratives is that they often are told from the point of view of biracial people. It's usually people who have the privilege of doing less demanding work during slavery, who are close, who have more access to like books and stuff, even if it was illegal, they could sneak and do it. Like they had access to do those things and who worked in the house. And we didn't really get to see the narratives of people who worked in the fields. I know that there was the Works Progress Administration, the WPA in the 1930s. It was part of the New Deal and it was a bunch of white 
researchers who went into the house of formerly enslaved people and they would be like, how was slavery for you? (laughs) And you can imagine what it might have been like to have these Black people, have white people come into their house and be like, how was slavery? You probably did not get accurate responses. And so we don't really have those stories. And so for me, that opens up for me to start asking questions about you know, what was it like for Black people to live their day-to-day lives during slavery, during Reconstruction, during Jim Crow? We have so much information about how like white people have terrorized Black people, but we don't really have a lot of information about how Black people treated each other. And so that's really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in like Black people's hopes and fears throughout history, their wildest dreams. I know people like to say it's college. I don't think it's college. but <laughs> And and what did they do with the free time that they did have? You know, how did they take care of each other? So whenever I'm writing about the past or I'm writing historical fiction, those are really the questions that I ask and the things that I look at. And so I know for you recently, you wrote a newsletter about trying to write about the past, and you talked about being very resistant to it. So I wonder if you can explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, I actually want to say I like the idea, like I like that perspective on historical fiction of kind of decentering white folks and kind of decentering the terror in a particular way, like their hopes, their fears, their dreams. A few years ago, I wouldn't have said this, but today, me, that's a little more mature (laughs) and open-minded. I think there's space for both types of narratives, where the not-so-great stories and the more imaginative or positive stories. Um, So I don't want to police anybody's storytelling. But for me, I do have a lot of resistance to writing about the past and even stories, movies, anything set in the past when it comes to Black folks. Um, And it's funny because I'm working on a story right now set in the 1950s. And the only reason I started writing it because I couldn't get it out of my head. And even while I was going to sleep at night, I kept seeing this little girl standing in the middle of this dirt road, just like standing there. And I was like, all right, so I see you ain't going nowhere. Let's do it. But yeah, you know, so as I was saying about being resistant, I emotionally cannot handle movies about slavery and just like racist here. And I think I picked that up from my grandma. My grandma says she does not watch movies like that because she lived through that time. Mississippi burning, all of that. She does not. She says she couldn't get through it. And so she just doesn't even try. But, you know, for me, as a person that writes about Mississippi, writes about Black people in Mississippi, If I go back in time, like I just can't ignore that context. And I think that's what makes it difficult for me because it's like, do I have the capacity to then reckon with what was happening in the 1950s? Or, you know, how do I write it in a way that honors my stance on who I allow to take up space in my stories? Um, Because there's, there are certain people like they are not allowed to be taking up space in my story. And if they are in there, it has to be very intentional and it can't be in a way where it's overpowering my characters and their autonomy. And so as I work through this current story, 
I'm trying to figure out like, how do I keep myself safe? How far will I go? Where will I take my character? Where will I take my characters? And then like, if they must suffer, how bad will it be? Um, And then there's figuring out the purpose of it all, particularly for my main character. And I think part of it is like hope and imagination in the face of terror and from the perspective of a child. And I think that's a really hard subject when dealing with children during that time period. I feel like I'm rambling, but that's just my context of I'm trying to figure out, am I brave enough to tackle this now that I'm being confronted with a story that wants to be set in the past and just the fear, the fear emotionally, it's just a lot for me. And I resist those stories in every capacity, not just in my writing, but I resist consuming them. Something you said that I think is very interesting is about suffering of Black characters and how much your character should suffer. That was something that came up in my writing group. I'm the only Black person in there. There are other people of color, um, but I am the only Black person. And there was this one story I wrote about a lynching. And someone was like, I wanted the girl who's getting lynched to suffer a bit more. And I'm like, (laughs) no. No, no, ma'am. That's not going to happen. Yeah. She was like, I just feel like she got out too easy. And I'm like, she's a black person who's being lynched. That is enough suffering. And I think when black people or when I had a black reader who read the same story, she was like, that was really intense. Um, And she did not think the black character should have suffered more. And so for me, I really like this term by Robert Jones Jr. And he talked about how black people have blood memory. And so the suffering of Black people is part of our blood memory. And so for me, I felt like if I'm writing this story to Black people, I need to be careful about how much suffering is shown happening to other Black people because it is in our blood memory. Like you bring up lynching, it's a very sensitive topic because we remember it, whether or not we've experienced that it is in our blood. And so I think to non-Black people, Maybe my Black characters don't suffer enough, but to Black people, they suffer enough for them. And so for me, because my audience, my target audience is Black people, I will continue to have like not the amount of suffering that maybe white people think is appropriate. I just really hate that idea that like Black people have to earn their salvation. I'm like, girl, no, that is a very like white supremacist idea. You know... We And we can talk about this as a later date once you read it, but I'll say this about Long Division. The first time I read that story, I cried at the ending. The ending tore me up. I was upset about it. I didn't like how, I didn't like how he handled the characters, particularly the Black female characters. But this next go round, I don't want to say he spared the characters, but there was a lot more tenderness in how the characters were handled. Was there Mm -hmm. still heartbreaking moments? Yes, but it was handled with more care, I think, in the revision. And that's all I ask for. I don't think we always have to be so heavy-handed. The character's not going to always prevail. In every story, the character is not going to win. Every story, the the character is not going to rise like the phoenix or whatever. (laughs) But can we write it with a little more tenderness where it just doesn't hit you in the chest, you know? But again, space for everything. If you want to write that kind of story, that's fine. I'm less likely to consume those types of stories. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) 
I agree. And I think it does go back to like, who is your intended audience? Um, I find that the ones that tend to be very heavy handed in violence towards black people, their audience is not black people. Um, And that was something that Jordan Peele talked about in Get Out. Initially, Daniel Kaluuya's character was supposed to be killed by cops, but he was like, I felt like that would have been too damaging to the black people in the audience. So I changed it. And I'm like, thank you. Someone should have told Lena Waite that (laughs) and Queen and Slim. (laughs) I think she was trying to do something in that film that she didn't have the capacity to do. And I'm not saying she won't ever have the capacity. I just think Black artists should be ambitious, right? But I think there's mm-hmm. a there's a such thing as being too ambitious. PSA always talked about talks about this revision. It's okay to revise. And sometimes you need to revise and so much of that movie needs to be revised because she, she just didn't handle it with the type of tenderness that it needed when you're trying to subvert something. Because I think there was an attempt at subversion that did not go over well, in my opinion. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and I think like you, I also have a lot of resistance to reading about slavery or watching things that are about slavery. Um, so when I was in that slavery class, a lot of the slave narratives would always be proposition like, I'm a good little Negro, therefore I shouldn't be enslaved. But then it was like, well, what about the Black people who are seen as bad Black people? Should they be enslaved? And it, and it never really answered that question. It was just like, it's immoral to enslave me because I can read or I can think or I can do that. But I was like, what about the ones who can't read, you know? It was it was a very exceptional type of thing. But then when I would see white people handling slave narratives, it was always like they always had to put their guilt front and center and be like, but there were some good white people there. And it's just it's so annoying because it's like goodness and enslaver are oxymorons like they cannot you cannot hold someone hostage and call yourself a good person like those two things don't exist. And then another thing is the violence, like all of the violence towards um, enslaved people and whipping scenes. I hate them so much. I hate them. Did you see 12 Years of Slavery? I think that was the that was my last time watching that kind of movie. Like that's when it was done for me. I cried within I think that a whipping scene in that movie happened in less than 20 minutes within the film. And I cried, I cried, I cried, I cried through the whole thing. I was still crying after we passed it. It was so brutal. It was brutal. And I think the the director was trying to do something with that because there was another kind of brutal, brutal scene that the director seemed to just like stay on for too long with the, with the camera and stuff. And I think after I saw that movie, I was done. That's when I really just cut the cord. I'm not watching that shit. So don't ask me. (laughs) I actually saw that movie in my class on slavery, which was taught by a white professor. Yes, right when the movie was done, I'm like distraught in tears. And she's like, let's go back to the class and discuss this. (laughs) Uh, White people should not teach classes on slavery. (laughs) Never. Absolutely not. Oh, not only that, she was the kind of person who was like, I'm going to say the N-word in these texts because I want to respect the literary effect of what it had on it. And I'm like, you're in a class full of Black people and you're like, I have the right to say the N-word in front of you all. And I'm like, my God, 
She was the worst. You, and she's tenured, so she's not going anywhere. Is she still there? She's still there. Okay, this probably ain't who I think it is. So I think that heifer gone. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not the one you, you think about. Uh, but to get back to, to what I was saying, like one book I felt did a lot of really great things when it came to slavery was Kindred by Octavia Butler. Um, I know a lot of people have problems with the relationships between them. I'm not sure if it's like Dana, Rufus, and Alice or Dana and Kevin, but there were people that had problems with the relationship. I found the premise, uh, which was what if a modern day Black person went back to slavery? I thought it was it's still very prevalent today, especially with the people who claim I am not my ancestors <laughs> and who claim that if they were in slavery times, things would be different. And I found that that book really tore apart that argument. Not only that, it was very humanizing towards our enslaved ancestors because one, we are not enslaved. We don't know what it's like to be enslaved. And according to Octavia, most of us would not be the freedom fighters we claim to be um, today. We would just go along with slavery in order to survive. And so I found she was really gracious towards enslaved people that even the ones that we may call coons or something, um, by saying that we really don't have a right to judge what our ancestor, our enslaved ancestors did to survive. One, because we don't live in that reality. And two, because we wouldn't be here without the decisions that they made. And so we can't really fault them for the choices they made. One, because they had so few choices. They were owned by other people. I think that's a good point. And it's Something I think about a lot when a character is calling out to you who's almost the complete opposite of you. So their values, their choices, their beliefs maybe conflict with yours, but it would be dishonest to try to create a perfect character, especially when you're writing from a place of the past. And if you're like me and feel like these characters are potentially ancestors, maybe not even blood ancestors, but when I'm writing these characters, I believe that they existed in some dimension like somewhere and maybe they still exist and sometimes they're you know you can't expect a character written in 1812 to be 2023 woke it's just not happening you know like you said about not judging and you know Octavia Butler handling even the people that you know the the enslaved folks that may have been the coons or selling out other <laughs> enslaved folks colonialism and slavery was like not just physically warfare it was psychological warfare and you know even the folks today that think they're the most conscious conscious the most woke you're still carrying the wounds like we still have so many just like wounds that we're carrying and so if you if we write these complicated characters and stories we do need to extend grace to them and I think that would help us with like maybe getting better at extending grace to ourselves and each other as we're trying to undo all this psychological damage. I, I do want to keep talking about Kindred. There's one more thing that I loved about Kindred, but I think that this is like the sticky part of it. So one thing she did was she perverted the master slave romance that we hear so much about, especially from white people who want to kind of excuse the brutality of slavery. And so the main, one of the main characters, Rufus, who is a white enslaver, he quote unquote loved Alice so much that he enslaved her so she wouldn't leave him. It was really fucked up. And so we get to see 
what it would have been like for this master to be quote unquote in love with his slave and how possessive and obsessive and abusive he was. And so what I got from that was that there's really no reality where a healthy love can exist between an enslaver and enslaved person. And like, how much can you really love someone you're holding hostage? And so after reading that, I actually wrote the short story thinking about these questions, thinking about Rufus, who he insisted like, oh, Dana, if I lived in your time, which was the 1970s, where I could marry Alice, our relationship would be different. And I'm like, would it really be different? Um, And then I was also thinking about Stockholm Syndrome, because both Dana and Alice talked about how much they hated Rufus, how much they were scared of Rufus, but also how a little part of them liked him and held some affection for him. And so I'm like, knowing Stockholm Syndrome is like present across all demographics and all populations, knowing that Black people were held hostage for centuries, I'm like, it would make sense that something like that would exist. And so I wrote a short story where this Black enslaved woman has Stockholm Syndrome. And I know that there are some people who will probably cuss me out if they read it. So I've hidden it and I haven't shown anybody. But I'm also thinking like, this is a possibility. This thing can happen, whether we like it or not. It's something that can happen. And I think those are the stories that I'm interested in, the ones that we haven't heard about, both the good ones about our ancestors' dreams and hopes, but also the bad ones about things that that they have done that, like you said, we may not agree with today, but that is still a possibility um, and that could still have existed. You know, that reminded me, I don't know if you've ever seen this argument and I don't know where I've seen it, probably in a Twitter thread, which can go to hell quick. I'm so glad I haven't been on there. But making this argument that to insinuate that slaves could not consent to these, like certain that enslaved folks could not consent to these relationships with these, you know, slave masters and that kind of thing, like that's taking away their autonomy. And it's like, There is no consent when you're enslaved. Being an enslaved person and and being in love with your the person that's enslaving you is equivalent to when you're in that cycle with an abuser, which many of us have experienced. And then when you're out of that cycle, you realize that it was not love. That is trauma bonding. Not what TikTok and all that is saying about trauma bonding is when y'all bond over trauma. That is not what it is. Trauma bonding is literally when you are attached in that particular way with your abuser. And so I know it makes people uncomfortable, but there is no consent. For our ancestors that are the result of a slave or and even if it wasn't like even if you weren't enslaved by the person back then if you were in a relationship with a white person there was no consent you could never say no you didn't have choices the same choices that we have now and so i i think i think it's a ugly truth and i also think there's a way to write those stories like you were saying in the way that that kind of balances that truth I think, without like being dishonest and making it seem like, oh no, it was a love story. No, it wasn't a love story. It's a fucked up story, but it's a story that existed, that belonged to our ancestors. It was shit that they went through. So 
And I think it's telling those fucked up stories that is that humanizes our ancestors more than like the the long suffering enslaved person who's super moral despite all of the immorality that is happening to them. I think saying, you know, our ancestors made bad decisions, our ancestors would do things that we would consider terrible people to do. But then at the same time, it's like they didn't really have a lot of options. Their hands were tied, you know, in a lot of ways. And but they're still human and their stories are still interesting and fascinating and we should still try to tell them without being confined to the constraints of like what today would be like you can't say that I it it even reminds me of the people who get uncomfortable with the idea that black enslaved people had sex drives or that they were queer or trans or things like that because they're like you're putting today's terms on but I'm like trans people have always existed Queer people have always existed. Even if, you know, um, enslaved people were getting sexually assaulted, like they probably still desired sex, consensual sex. I'm like, it's not unrealistic. Yeah. And I think that's what I was trying to say. I think two things can be true. I think two things can be true. Juju Bay made a really good point on Twitter, maybe like a year or so ago about like, y'all be telling people they need to read, but there's books that exist. Like some of them are reading. There's a book called The Feminization of the Black Man. There are books that are pushing these uh, these agendas, even though they claim we're the ones with the agenda. Um, <laughs> and so reading things that aren't, written through a patriarchal lens, a white supremacist lens, because I'm sorry, that's that's white supremacy too. I don't care if a black man wrote it. Um, and understanding, looking at these newspaper clippings, things that we actually have documentation of, of black people, people in general, being arrested for cross-dressing. It wasn't just cross-dressing. They didn't have the language that we have now. Those were trans people. We're talking about people that were living, quote unquote, as the gender that they that they weren't assigned at birth and they were getting arrested. This shit has been on the books as illegal. And now that we're updating the language, now the laws are updating to now make it illegal to be trans. And it's happening right now as we speak. White supremacy never sleeps. (laughs) Y'all evolving. We going to evolve with you. That's just how it goes. And so, yeah. Yeah. I think that's all I got on that, but like I agree, and I also have learned a lot from this because <laughs> I've I have really evolved on my stance on this. Like I used to be really hardcore, like what's the point of those kind of stories, you know? Like I don't fuck with trauma porn when it comes to black people. Why black people can't be happy? Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think I have a more nuanced perspective on it now, and just kind of like you know, hearing people out and hearing their perspective. (laughs) So do you want to take a break? Absolutely. Thank y'all for tuning into our show. If you want to support us, you can rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Hoodoo Plants and Instagram at Hoodoo Plant Mamas. Check us out on Patreon where we share exclusive videos, plant and spiritual content for only $3 a month. We have new patrons, Lori, Kelsey, and Brenda. Thank y'all so much for supporting us. Thank you for supporting us. If you prefer one-time donation, you can hit us up on Cash App, 
cash tag hoodoo plant mamas or our paypal hoodoo plant mamas at gmail.com let's get back to the show so before the break we talked about conjuring alternate realities in the past so i wanted to talk about conjuring uh different realities for our future so Danny, can you talk about any experience you've had with writing the future or reading about the future? So I think about the future a lot, um, but I've never written anything futuristic. Um, in my fiction, which I wrote a little bit about in my Substack, I write away from time. So when I'm writing, I'm typically writing from a place of timelessness. Time, time doesn't exist. And that means my characters could be existing at any point in time. Like there's there's no specific time constraints on their existence. Um, and I think it has something to do with living and growing up in like the South in a rural town. And you might relate to this as well. Time, it feels like time is like always standing still when you grow up up in that environment, things move slower. When I go back home, there are things that look exactly the same. My school look exactly the same. There are grocery stores that are in the exact same place that they've always been and look exactly the same. We talking about 30 years. The only thing that has changed was when maybe like about a decade ago, we had a really bad storm. And so there are some neighborhoods that had to get like rebuilt, but Everything else, especially when you get deeper into like the country, nothing has changed. The same little fucking old country store that we used to have to drive by when we went to town or when I when we were on the bus going to school is still there. It's a different name. It used to be called Mama's. <laughs> they changed the name because I think Mama done passed away. But yeah, so it's hard for me to think about time in my stories time doesn't exist in the same way in small town Mississippi as it exists in like New York City I don't know if that makes sense so when I'm when it comes to that I don't know if that's related to Afrofuturism or or that's some different shit and a lot of people don't like that when I've been in workshops people reading my fiction would be like I don't know what I don't know where we are. Like, I don't know what era this is. Like, are we in the 60s? Are we in this? And it's like, we know where and everywhere. <laughs> as far as the Afrofuturism that I have read, um, Octavia Butler has this. Well, you'll talk about the other person in a minute. But Octavia Butler has this short story collection that I actually really like and I want to reread, but it's packed up and I'm, I don't feel like unpacking all them boxes um, called Blood, Child, and Other Stories. And she actually, after every story, gives like an explanation, I think, of where, how the story was born. And it's like, that woman was a genius. She was a genius. She could pick up a physics book or a book on how to build fucking trains and then create a story about it like, like she's an expert. And I had just never read nothing like that. And I actually need to reread it because it was just so much in it. And I think that was my first time being exposed to like that type of like imaginative out of this world type of writing that was supposed to be set in this future, you know, reality or whatever. So, yeah. 
I really love Blood Child and other stories. I haven't read it in like four years, so maybe I should reread it soon. But I like that idea. I'm actually going to steal it. And after every one of my short stories, I'm going to write like an explanation of where it came from. (laughs) But I agree with you. I think in my stories, it does have a sense of timelessness. And for me, it's very easy to erase time um, from stories. I think for me, it's harder for me to be a bit more intentional and be like, this is current day, or this is 1980, or this is 21, whatever. I find that I tend to write either alternate realities of the present, or I tend to write about the past because I think that there's so much information that we already have that it's easy for me to just go in and ask questions and wonder things. It's harder for me to think about the future. And I haven't really written about the future a lot. Currently, I'm doing a flash fiction challenge. And there was a prompt a few days ago to write about the future. And it took me two days to come up with like 300 words (laughs) about the future. Because it was just like, I don't know, I just got overwhelmed with thinking about what the future, what it would look like, like, what's the technology? How are people going to be like, I don't know. I don't know. I just got really overwhelmed in the details. And so from what I've read of Afrofuturist work, it tends to be optimistic. One writer I love is Julia Mallory. They're a friend of the show. And I've read their flash fiction and I really love her use of technology. For example, in Reclaiming Our Time, Black people can report white people for microaggressions and white people are taxed for wasting Black people's time. Also, that is a flash fiction piece and the amount of details and like how fleshed out the world is for that small word count. Amazing. Spectacular. I know you're listening, Julia. Amazing. (laughs) I've already already messaged them about this. (laughs) But in another piece... In You Will Know Your Tribe by Their Joy, when Black people laugh, they start flying. And I thought that that was just so beautiful. Um, But something that I've noticed about their work is that even though there's still racism, there's still microaggressions in white people, there's also joy and there's love and there's laughter and there's warmth in these pieces. And it was something uh, similar in Pet by Kweke Amezi. Um, It's a future where this Black trans girl who's situationally verbal is accepted for who she is. And the book is post-revolution. It's where all the quote-unquote monsters, white people, are taken out. But there's still a monster lurking in this community of color. And so with Afrofuture's work, what I find is that it's about imagining a better world for all Black people. Um, But it's also still kind of realistic in that conflict still exists, but there is a future where, you know, reparations are possible, where it's it's possible for all of us to be accepted and loved for who we are. I also love those stories by Julia. And I'm always like, damn, how did, like, how did they even come up with that? I'm really fascinated by like how expansive Black folks' imaginations are. Um, that's just like what I was saying with Octavia Butler coming up with some of those stories in their short story collection. Um, but that story about like where the laughter makes them fly, that one really did me in. It's like, how do you even imagine that? Like, where does that even... 
And I don't care what nobody says. Like, I love me some Black joyful stories. Like, though, I like those types of worlds. And like you said, it's not, there's still conflict, but there's also like this beauty mm-hmm. involved. I was thinking about dystopian, like futuristic stories. And I was wondering what your opinion was as far as like, what role do these stories play? Because let me just preface this with, so I could be clear, I have not finished Parable of the Talents. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's, book, that's book two of the Earthsea series. But I did finish Parable of the Sower and I'm struggling through Parable of the Talents because I'm scared. I'm scared. Like, it's like, oh, Lord, it just keeps getting worse and worse. I don't know how that ends, but the parable of the sower, sower, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm country. Um, it was dark. It was dark. That story was really showing where we might be headed. I know that there are other types of dystopian writing out there, and I just wonder, like, particularly for us, what's the role of that kind of writing? Like, what do you think that, what role that plays for us? Okay, I'm glad you included this because when I was thinking about Afrofuturist work, I'm like, would this count? Because um, it is a very diverse book, like it's full of all types of people. But the main, I finished the series. the The main character, Lauren Olamina, I by the time I got to the end of Parable of the Talents, I felt it was a satisfying ending. So it does it does get better. I feel like Asia Vare, who is Lauren's child, I feel like she was a little bit harsh. But you know, I empathize with her. I empathize. She is hard. I think she's not seeing her mother as a human being in a certain yes. type of way. But I think we all, I think that's just like a struggle you go to go through when you have a contentious relationship with your mother. And Lauren was a lot. Yeah, Lauren was she was a little arrogant too. I loved her, but she, it was like couldn't nobody tell her nothing. It's like, girl, you do not know everything. <laughs> That's true. Um, I, I I could see like a lot of her resentment towards Lauren because she was like, you know, if Lauren did things differently, I could have grown up with both of my parents. So I can see a lot of um, her anger there. But it was also like when she did. Wait, did you get to that part? I, I, you know, when Parable of the Talents open up, you know the outcome, some of the outcome of what, how Lauren ends up. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. I mean, in the first chapter, it says that she dies. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, But I haven't, I've been, I've got to the part where um, some other people join the gang. Those two little girls that they find. Oh, okay. Yeah, it gets, it and, gets a little worse. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I think at that point, once they got back on the road and it seemed like the people, these strange people started coming, that's when I was like, all right, taking a step back. And I'm listening to the audio book. So let's be clear. I'm experiencing this in 3D by listening <laughs> to it. So, yeah. I found the ending to be redemptive. And for me... I view dystopian futuristic stories as kind of like a warning sign. Um, And that's what, that is what Octavia Butler said when she wrote it was like, she saw it as if things continue the way that they are, here's one of the worst possible circumstances that could happen. But even throughout that, it was emphasizing that this is a cycle. 
Like this is the cycle of the worst that could happen, but eventually we will get through it. And even for Lauren, she got through it. She got everything that she wanted, not everything, but spoiler, I'll just say it. She got to see her dream come to fruition. And so the rest of the RC series was is supposed to be two books about Lauren and then four books about humans on another planet, but she could never figure out how to do that. And so it ended up being this duology, which I think for me, it was complete as is. But yeah, I saw it as one, a warning for the worst possible circumstances if we do not act now. And and being close to it, I think book one starts in 2024 and ends in 2027. And then book two starts in 2032. And it ends all the way in 2090. But there was a lot of hope in that. I think it was really dark, especially book one. <laughs> you started and she's like, somebody's getting raped. Somebody's head was cut off. There's blood. There's I'm like, oh my God. It, it's an extremely dark and grim story. But even throughout all of that grimness, there's still hope and there's still optimism. Yeah. And now that you said, look, anybody that know me, my friends think I'm weird. I don't care about no spoilers. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I get that some people don't like that. Now that you told me that the ending is a little more redemptive, I might be able to go ahead and finish it. Um, I think I got like eight hours left okay. of audio. But we'll see. I'm also listening to Salt Eaters. Oh, okay. Which is also a lot. Um, <laughs> read a happy book. <laughs> listen, that means I might not need to read Sing Unburied Sing, which is oh supposed to be God. my next book. So I don't know. Maybe I'll find something else over here. But yeah, I mean, even with the book one, I will say I was able to exhale once they, because you know, they were traveling. It's like once they got past a certain point and the group grew, I felt a little more at ease because Lauren and the mother two was not going to make it because they was already being reckless. You you know what they was doing and not paying attention. <laughs> We can talk about this at a later date, but I also, you know, I got some qualms with these problematic relationships that Octavia Butler be putting in here. Cause it's like, I've never seen anybody talk about the fact that like, Hey, why is a child or somebody this young with someone old enough to be their parent? Like, why are these two people together? Really old enough to be a grandparent low key. So I'm like, is that just the elephant everybody going to ignore? Or is it okay because it's set in the future? Because it bothered me. <laughs> it bothered me too. She was 18 and he was 57. And I thought like, maybe she's trying to comment on like the lawlessness of this future and how no one's really paying attention to like right and wrong. I don't know. <laughs> I think so too. I mean, I think that in the midst of chaos, certain things no longer matter. But I will give him credit that he knew it was wrong. It felt wrong, but there was a hopelessness and a need for everybody involved for intimacy. Everybody wants to feel that. And honestly, that probably was going to be the only opportunity Lauren had. I agree with you. Um, I do think because... Everyone around her was coupling up and no one was like with her. I think it could have also been an opportunity for 
um, Octavia to introduce a father-son duo and then maybe Ben Cole Jr. she ends up with, but you know. Or polyamory. Or that. Yeah, because there was that other kid that was the same age. They all could have had their thing going on. A lot of different decisions could have been made, but the book is written. <laughs> the book is written and I think it's older. It's older than me. I'm not sure if it's older than you, but yeah. Oh, shade. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I actually... It probably is older than me. I think it came out in 93. Oh, well, we, we're probably the same age then. Yeah. If it came out then. But yeah, I mean, I finished it. But this second book, Lord, is beating my ass. I'm not even going to lie. But that's you have softened it for me. So I might try to get it finished this week. I didn't I didn't like the second book as much as I liked the first one. I felt like the second one dragged a bit. Yeah, that first one, it was kind it was like... I'm surprised it wasn't harder for me to finish that. It was just moving so fast. Like every time you think it couldn't get worse, the worst possible thing happened. And every time you think maybe it's going to slow down, boom. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's all I have. Do you have anything else you want to say about um, Afrofuturist work or writing as conjure work? No, um, but I look forward to us having a part two of this conversation, hopefully with long division, because mm. I really want to talk about it. I hope that it's a book that we could talk about um, because, and I need to go back and read the ending because I'm like, I know that this changed. Because I, I was like, I don't want to sound like bad saying like, oh, the the I was mad about the ending last time and really hurt. But I just, there's no way. I know I'm a lot older I haven't read, this is like my first time revisiting this story since I was like early 20s, but I know I'm not crazy. So much has changed and yeah, I want to talk about it. I really do want to talk about it if we can. So yeah, but I enjoyed this conversation and yeah, and I'm happy to be back (laughs) (laughs) on the podcast. So yeah, if you like this episode, you can like, rate, and review Hootie Plant Mamas on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If anything from the show resonated with you, you can always tell us on social media where you can find us on Twitter at Hootie Plants and Instagram at Hootie Plant Mamas. Stay tuned for our next episode, y'all. Bye. Bye.